Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We've been talking about the Apollo 11 50th anniversary, and previously we had on Will Schneider, planetarium manager from the St. Louis Science Center. And on the phone right now, we are honored to have Dr. John Blevins, who's the deputy chief engineer for NASA Space Launch System Program at the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center. John, welcome to In Tune. Hey, thanks. Good to be here. We are glad to have you here. Hey, we tell us a little bit about your background. You you have been involved with space flight for quite a while. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been here at NASA for 20 years. Uh, before that, I worked in uh, private industry, even designed cars for a while. But I always wanted to be in the space business, and ultimately uh, ended up here in Huntsville at NASA about 1999. And since then, I've been working on different launch vehicles. Uh, worked on the shuttle a little bit. Did a little bit of research. Also worked on a uh, vehicle that we flew just up to Mach 6, the Ares vehicle, the previous program you may have heard of called Constellation. And then uh, just got, to, got uh, hooked on to SLS. It's been a great ride. We're doing good, good things. Now, many people may not know that, you know, when I think of NASA, they may think of Cape Canaveral, which was Cape Kennedy, and then changed back to Cape Canaveral, and they may think of Houston. But they may not know about Huntsville. They may not know about Stennis. They may not know about other kinds of centers that are around the country. What exactly happens at Huntsville other than space camp? <laughs> well, space camp is great. I will say that. And, and it does take all of those centers. We have a, a great NASA network. Uh, but Huntsville is the primary engineering center for launch vehicles for NASA. So you, you mentioned Houston, which we work uh, very closely with they're in charge of the capsule in fact uh, during the Apollo time it was called the manned spacecraft center uh, and so they were focused very much on capsules at that time and then of course we launch everything a little closer to the equator down at Kennedy Space Center and also over the water for public safety and that really makes that that launch site important as well so all the ones you mentioned are really important including down at Stennis where we test rockets but here in Huntsville is where uh, we have the original rocket team it started before we had NASA as the Army Ballistic Missile Agency. So back in the day when they were competing with the Russians and trying to get something in orbit, the Von Braun team was here in Huntsville, Alabama, and they were part of that Army Ballistic Missile Agency, and uh, they knew that they could get something in orbit, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and President Eisenhower at the time chose them to do that, and shortly thereafter, commissioned NASA, and, and that's kind of how Huntsville became a big NASA town. And, you know, Arnold, I don't know if you've ever driven down to Alabama, but it's interesting that when you pull into Alabama, the first rest stop is a big space capsule. Wow. And you talk about spending some time there. That's more than just a pit stop, because when, you're get, when you get your children out of the car— and they go through that, and they see that, they want to stay there and play and imagine and do all kinds of things. It's a wonderful thing to see. It's, it's like, what, within maybe a couple of miles once you get inside of Alabama from Tennessee? Hmm. Interesting. So it, it automat- automatically, you are put into that frame of mind. You're put into space. <laughs> kind of, yeah. John, what are, what are your memories of the Apollo 11 flight and what stands out to you from that particular journey? Well, you know, most of my memories of Apollo 11 is watching it since Apollo 11. I was two and a half years old when we did Apollo 11. I, you know, I distinctly remember watching men live stand on the moon, but that was probably Apollo 17. So I was just a a few years old uh, during the Apollo 11. But I, I do remember just the, I guess you could say how big a deal it was. 
you know, everybody in all of those missions, everybody, if they didn't have a TV, they were at Sears or uh, at some other department store trying to see those events. And so the thing that I remember is it was uh, it was coalescing, I guess, for everybody, right? It made everybody come together for this unique event uh, that was so outstanding. It gave us a sense of pride, too, you know, that everybody could gather around the same event. You know, it, it wasn't political. It wasn't social. It wasn't racial. It wasn't anything but just sense of pride in having seen this accomplished. Well, and we talked on the previous half hour, John, about how this is something that was like the first explorers who would set sail to go across the ocean or to discover, go across land to discover new continents or new lands. And this was totally because you're getting, you're getting off your planet. Right, you've gone where no man has gone before. So it's so it's not an insignificant event. No, the the fact that we've sent twelve individuals to the moon, you know, who walked on the moon. We sent fourteen, but only twelve got to go. It, it's 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 a very historic kind of thing. So I and I wonder if people really miss the points because I remember when I was a kid and would watch these things, and I would understand later on as technology was released or was mainstreamed, might be a better word, that NASA had developed that was actually beneficial for the entire general public. Can you speak to some of those things that the everyday person benefits from, from spaceflight and from NASA? Yeah, certainly. I can certainly list a few. You know, this, this is an exciting thing that I agree with you, uh, Arnie and, and, and Ellie, is, is totally missed by the common public, is that these investments bring a lot of things other than going to the moon. Right. So, uh, you know, everybody thinks of Tang, I think. Uh, but, you know, recently, uh, as part of the shuttle program, even there were some developments in how we do some heart bypass surgery and things like that. Whenever you invest in this kind of technology to do things we haven't done before, you're just going to have a lot of trickle down. Uh, we were able better to monitor the Earth and its environment, as you guys know. There's many things that are just part of everyday life. I, I don't have an inclusive list. I wish I did. I've got this public affairs officer sitting next to me that can probably throw in a few things. And she's right. She just wrote something down, the, uh, which I cannot read. The cordless drill. Okay, so there's so many things. Yeah, that's a great everyday thing. The cordless drill is something that we use that we take for granted that some of these investments just came out of the uh, the space program. And certainly, you know, just making computing smaller and lighter and doing the things that we've done as an agency so we can achieve our mission just are good investments to make America, as, as Ellie said, make America uh, preeminent in technology. And two, you know, and not to just kind of jump in here, but I was just reading recently about how there were, one of the guys who went up recently was a twin, and he had been in space for a while. When he came back, they did genetic testing on him versus his twin and found out that, you know, prolonged space travel changed his genetic makeup. Interesting. I thought that was incredibly interesting because I, I like that kind of stuff. My dad was in cancer research at Wash U, so I'm always interested in research and uh, how it all plays into understanding the human, you know, biology. And I thought that was tremendously interesting because we see you know, things like Lost in Space. We see Star Trek, and people are traveling forever and ever and ever. But to think that it could change your your DNA, your, your genetic makeup. That's pretty crazy. It's, it's amazing what gravity, or the lack thereof, 
or the time, the extended time, because I remember, you know, astronauts would go into quarantine, quote unquote, because we never knew what kind of bugs, I guess, they would get out there or what changes, you know, they might come back bringing us some ill-fated diseases or something. But they, they would then get checked out and medically and but that's that's very very interesting. And John, I will tell you that I personally used something at my home that was created for NASA by NASA. And that is my tower garden. My hydroponic garden that I grow right there in my backyard now was created by NASA so that the astronauts could grow um, fresh food. And what a tremendous development that is. It has made all the difference in me as a gardener. I'm able to do so much more in a smaller area. I'm able to grow all year long because I can use grow lights in the wintertime. And I can grow more without pests, without bugs, without pesticides, just using hydroponics. Which begs a question now that you, you see things like on the movie Mars and you see you know television shows that are space related and they have gravity inside. What does it take to achieve gravity in space for astronauts besides a turning space capsule, which I would see from the movies? Or is that yeah. real or is that fake? Well, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we're talking about this because we're talking also about Apollo. So I, I like this topic and that it's fun because Warner Von Braun himself spent a lot of time thinking about this. And if you even uh, look at the sketches, uh, Warner Von Braun had sketches. And if you came here to the Huntsville Space and Rocket Center, the preeminent museum for space development uh, uh, here in Huntsville, Alabama, you'll see pictures, and they were rotating. So can that centrifugal effect, that centrifugal force do that? And you talk about spinning capsules, certainly a capsule so small that it, it would make us, the gradient in that gravity would make us sick if we did that or that centrifugal effect. But one of the things that you can do that is more simple, say you went to Mars, would be a large structure that does spin, but it would have to be a large structure to really make sense there. I, I wish we had that Star Trek button where they cut the gravity on, you know, and everybody <laughs> yeah. would have the gravity boots. There isn't an easy way to do that today. And, and it isn't part of, uh, you know, for what we're trying to do right now for the moon mission, you know, that's kind of going forward work for a long-term mission. Uh, for Mars, because we're going to get to the moon in three days and it won't negatively affect us uh, during that time frame. But but you were right, the spinning, the centrifugal effect is the easy way to make that solution work. But it would have to be a large structure, maybe hundreds of feet in diameter, to make it really practical so that we don't just get sick along with having that gravity. One of the questions I had wanted to ask you was your insights about the plans NASA has for future moon and Mars flights. I know there's been discussion about that that we need to be there by 2024 or 2022, or I don't remember exact date, but very similar to the definition that President Kennedy had declared to put a man on the moon prior to the end of the decade, which we did do. Where do you see the future of the space flight going? Well, that, that immediate thing is that return to the moon as a platform for further exploration. And we are doing it different this time. You know, I really love the speech by Kennedy uh, you know, as you pointed out, Arnold, I, I love the history and, and I love the speech. And I love the fact that when he's at Rice University, he said, you know, why do we do these things? Why does Rice play Texas, right? We do these things because they're hard, uh, not because they're easy. Uh, that was his joke in the middle of that speech, you know, uh, because I don't think Rice had competed well against Texas lately. Uh, <laughs> but he set down that challenge, you know, he set down the challenge of do these things because they're hard and they measure us. They, they build that technology base. They make us preeminent. They make us 
a great country uh, in doing those things. And they also provide um, kind of a way to show that, that, that what we do is, is a capitalist country with freedom uh, produces great results. You know, when he laid down that challenge, he was still concerned whether we make it. And I think uh, Vice President Pence uh, laid down a, a similar challenge recently. And his challenge was is that we will go get on the moon by 2024 and think we can meet that challenge. And we're working right now to make the plans to do that. Uh, we have this Artemis missions, of which there's the Orion capsule and the SLS rocket. I'm that SLS deputy chief engineer. Our huge part of that, is, as well as the systems you mentioned, Kennedy Space Center, and they or where we're going to launch, and they have the exploration ground systems. They, they support us to make sure that we can get off the pad and do that. These are really platforms. What's really different about the 60s in this mission is we're trying to take and build a platform where we can do these missions to the moon, make them sustainable, put a space station around the moon, if you want to refer to it that way. I don't, I don't think the public right now refers to it that way, but Gateway is, a, is kind of an outpost, I think is the best way and the way they refer to it. So SLS can take more cargo. Uh, it can help put that gateway out there. And it can be the platform on which we go do the further exploration. That's something that wasn't part of the Apollo uh, mission platform. Is a kind of a sustainable outpost and outreach and, and uh, Mars missions after we establish a lunar base. So that's kind of where we are with that. We're in a formulation phase for how we go to Mars. We had a plan. That plan was a slow plan because the commitments weren't quite as uh, visible and they, they, you know, it takes uh, financial investment by the, the country and commitment to do these things. And, and so now they've come out with those neat recent announcements and said, we want these things to occur and, and what does it take to get there? And so we're in that formulation phase of, of uh, planning uh, beyond the moon. You know, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because I saw a statistic and I, I may be incorrect in my number, but I believe I'm pretty close, that during the Apollo, during the Mercury and Gemini and Apollo programs, 4% of the national budget went to NASA. And now it's like 0.45%. And so if we expect things to happen, you know, obviously you have to you know pay out some money. But it leads to this question about, I know, uh, SpaceX rockets, and has NASA been involved with all of those, you know, the ones that take off and then they land back down rather than, you know, land in the ocean? And if so, how is that involvement? And if not, is there future, I guess, linkages together with a company like that, private enterprise? Well, there, you know, this is a great time to be a rocket scientist or rocket engineer, as I like to say, uh, because there are developments. You mentioned SpaceX and their uh, boosters, recovery of the boosters. Uh, there's Blue Origin. Uh, ULA is still launches more than anybody else, United Launch Alliance, and uh, does a great job. So we've got these companies, uh, and I mentioned those three. Uh, Boeing is building a commercial career. I'm trying not to leave anybody out, you know, when we uh, talk about it. And NASA has been part of all of those to some degree. And, and we we were involved in, in uh, early on in the recovery of the boosters, you know, when SpaceX announced that, I actually took a trip to Hawthorne, California myself and advised them, you know, their initial take on recovery was very similar to shuttle. If you recall, we recovered the the uh, boosters on shuttle with parachutes. Mm-hmm. And so I went out and talked about that. And actually, help them come to the conclusion that that wasn't the right way to do it. And, and so it's a small industry, you know, the grid fins that SpaceX uses, the databases and the kind of things that they use were things developed by NASA. So NASA does more than just develop the rocket. In fact, you know, the reality is we don't really build the rocket. There's a 
uh, right now a lot of people are trying to draw a distinction between commercial and SLS, and SLS is built by commercial companies, right? Because you've got Boeing and you've got Lockheed building capsule and you've got Northrop Grumman building boosters and you've got several different companies uh, providing input. So it's a relatively small, it was a small industry, I should say, because we hadn't developed new rockets in a while. But all of those companies I mentioned are developing new rockets all at the same time. So one, it's an exciting time. Two, NASA is involved. We're kind of the repository of experts and knowledge. And so our job is to help U.S. industries be successful. And so we've played roles when SpaceX has needed us to do that. I don't want to take anything away from the great achievements they've done. I think they've done a good job. And uh, they, they've taken that base knowledge uh, from NASA and, and will ask questions when they need it. And they've gone and developed a pretty good system. So excited to see that there. Uh, we are partnered with them for future exploration. So uh, I got asked the question maybe a couple weeks ago, said, said who's going to get there first? Mentioned one of the rocket companies uh, that had made an announcement or NASA. And, and my comment is we're getting there together. What we're trying to do is build an architecture to go to the moon and, and do the things that a private company can't easily do. Like those big payloads that I talk about, whether that's uh, an architecture for an outpost or whatever. And then we're going to partner with commercial companies really maybe not so dissimilar to the model we already have or even what we did in Apollo. A lot of those commercial companies built those pieces of hardware. And we're going to partner with those companies and they're going to build a lot of the hardware for our uh, lunar landing. So I'm glad we've got a lot of companies that have emerged recently. We consolidated. We've gone through decades of consolidation in the aerospace business and now we're going through uh, a, a pretty exciting time of developing new rockets and having new capabilities. And so uh, I don't know if that strictly answered your question, uh, but we've got some some great things. Going no, that's on. that's great because there was a new rocket that was tested at Stennis what last year or two years ago, and that's part of the going to the the Mars project. It was am I correct in that or? Well, you know, I was so busy working on the space launch system, I might have missed that one. But uh, there's been a lot of tests. You know, uh, Stennis has repetitively done tests for the United Launch Alliance down there, uh, coming up with stuff, and they, they they may have done some others here in Huntsville. We actually have some test stands that we use during okay. the pattern. Blue Origin is using and some other groups are using right now. So it's, so it is a, a kind of a combined industry, even though there's a, there's a lot going on. Are these going to be international kinds of cooperation, or is it strictly going to be pretty much like a United States private NASA interaction as these things develop further? Well, you know, there's been some international cooperation on the current rocket. I, I will say that, you know, the, the uh, European Space Agency built a part for what is part of the Orion uh, system. I, I really don't know the plans. You know, space has always been since we competed and we did a good job and we started that Apollo Soyuz type mission. Space has always been a place of peace and a place of coming together. And I expect this to be no different. Mm -hmm. But those 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 relationships aren't formal yet. I think they, you know, once we do something really exciting and we go around the moon with people in upcoming years and we send our mission in upcoming years it'll be unmanned first and then we send a manned mission i imagine there'll be a lot of interest in doing those things and and one thing you know ellie mentioned i'm going to back up i'm going to enter your conversation from before just a little bit if that's okay sure. you know we talk about it was about four and a half percent or something like that of the first national product during the 1960s it was a great investment by this country to go there the advancements that we have made will help make it cheaper a lot of people look at the advancements we've made, whether it's technical, uh, computing, and all that, those advancements, uh, in large part, people think will make it simpler. 
And that's really not where it's at. And it's interesting when you guys were talking, the advancements will make it cheaper. When we did the Apollo moon missions, we had roughly 400,000 people across the country doing that effort in order to be successful. These advancements, the skills like CFD, uh, computational fluid dynamics, for instance, the tools that we use, having the faster computers, having computers in every engineer's hands rather than coming up with a complex equation and giving it, giving that to what we called a computer back in that day, which was a person calculating it. Those are the advancements that will take it from 4.5% of the gross national product down to a lower number. I do agree that it will probably be a bigger investment than we're doing in this very particular year, but I think that's where the investments that we've made over these years in technology will pay off. So anyway, that's a personal opinion. Uh, I don't think the NASA... Uh, headquarters public affairs person has thought about that, but but it is a personal opinion that that is going to reap great benefit, and we're going to be less expensive and achieve an even grander mission in this time. You know, Arnold, I will tell you what I see though. As I think about this, my mind is just expanding and expanding. Yes, I see the 2024 presidential inauguration on taking moon? place on the moon. Ooh. Okay, did you all hear that? You've heard cool. it first. You've heard it first here. Now, John, I don't want you. I know. I know you and the and the public affairs guy are probably like back there laughing yeah. your behinds off. Okay, <laughs> but when it I, happens, I'm laughing just a little bit. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but that's okay. Remember that you heard it first from me. Okay. Hey, we've got we've got about one minute. What's your favorite thing about the whole? astronaut program, about the whole space space flight program, whether it be Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, the shuttle, what what it, what really is the thing that you really like? Well, I'll tell you what I like. I like where we're going. Uh, I get to work with them now. I love history. I've seen a lot of history. I've met a lot of, of the men who walked on the moon. But what I really like is the fact that the astronaut corps I work with today are going to be the next group of people to stand on the moon. And that's what I like the best. That's great. Dr. John Blevins, who's Deputy Chief Engineer, NASA Space Launch System Program at the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center. John, thank you very much. We appreciate you coming on to Intune today and taking the time out of your busy schedule to do that. And best wishes for a great celebration tomorrow. Thank you.